Prophets. So if you're not familiar, it's at the end of your Old Testament. If you see the Psalms as you're turning through your Bible, keep going. If you see Matthew, go back a little bit. All right. To begin with, I want to remind you of what we are doing this morning. We are continuing um, a, just a, a brief series. We started last week, as Nick mentioned, to prepare for this collective communal call to prayer in this season leading up to Easter. Um, and so, so what we're looking at or I guess you could say the lens we're looking through is the lens of wilderness. And what I suggested to you last week uh, was that the wilderness is a place that is unique in God's plans. It's a place where in the, in the natural realm, in our lives as we experience, it's a place of hardship, it's a place of lack, it's a place of solitude instead of a place of people, and yet it is a place where God works powerfully to do specific things. And so we took the angle last week of looking at Israel's time in the wilderness prior to entering into the promised land. We looked at the 40 years that they wandered during the days of Moses, and as Moses looks back on that time, right before they enter into the promised land, he explains or pulls back the curtain and reveals what it was God was doing in what looked like a 40-year waste of time. What looked like, you know, the, the clock is stopped and a 40-year timeout. That's what it felt like. Um, but God explained actually that he was doing significant things. And what I suggested to you last week and will suggest again is that when you understand what the wilderness is for in the hands of a God who loves you and has the best intentions for you, you will not only be able to endure and even enjoy the wilderness, but you'll also recognize seasons in your life where you need to directly put yourself in such a place. And so the wilderness has become kind of a metaphor or a picture for, uh, for even the se- season of Lent. Even the length of time of 40 days is drawn both from Israel's 40 years in the wilderness and from Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness that precede his ministry in the opening chapters of the gospel. So that's kind of the background, and that's in common with what we're doing today. What's changing is the angle that we're looking at, or the picture. If you, if you want to think of the wilderness in stereo, we did the left speaker last week. But to get the fullness of it, we need the right speaker, which is what we're going to do today. Whereas the picture last week was of God as Father, and a Father who lovingly disciplines and provides for his children. The metaphor this week is God as Lover, who's seeking to woo his people into deeper intimacy with him. Whereas last time we looked at a preparatory season, which makes sense. Parents' primary duty is to prepare their children for adulthood, right? Uh, Whereas that was a preparatory season and it was before Israel enters the land. Here in Hosea, we're looking at after they've been kicked out of the land, okay? So it's not preparatory, it is actually a call back into relationship because of Israel's long-standing and persistent rebellion. In other words, originally we were talking primarily about this work that God does um, to strengthen us, uh, but now we're going to talk about the work that God does to call us to repentance. Now, Martin Luther, at the opening of his 95 Theses, which is the document that kind of began this historical happening we call the Reformation. It's where we get the Protestant church from. It all begins with a 95-point argument from a Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther, which he nailed to the door of his local church. But it opens with this sentence, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. 
The Christian life is one of continual repentance. And what he meant was the whole reason we need a savior like Jesus is because we've gone wrong, because we've gone astray. And when Jesus saves us and sets us right, every step we take is a step backwards, or maybe better, a step back towards God. Okay? Every step we take in growth is away from sinful practices and patterns and thought patterns. Okay? And so the only way to grow as a Christian is to grow in repentance. And Martin Luther's point was that repentance should be a normal, regular thing. If, if you can't remember the last time you repented as a Christian, that's not a good place to be. It's not a badge of honor that you say, boy, I've been so sinless this week, I have nothing to repent of. That completely misunderstands the problem. The problem is not that you occasionally sin and you now need to avoid it. The problem is that sin has worked its way into every area of your life and you're blind to it and God's got to slowly and consistently work it all out. Okay? So what we're talking about when we talk about repentance applies to all of us. However, the focus in Hosea and the place that I want to target today is the places of long-standing distance from God. Maybe we can call it capital R repentance. Okay? And the season that comes before that, we have a lot of different names for, and they're all kind of emotionally charged. So in general, I'm not going to use them throughout. But just to give you an example, there's, there's the, the, the name backsliding, right? Backsliding implies that you were, you know, marching up the mountain of God's will. You were making progress, but now you're moving down the hill instead of up, right? But what I want to draw our attention to is not these emotionally charged terms that sometimes have too much history to be helpful. What I want to draw your attention to is this reality of seasons, you know, not, not days, but weeks, months, sometimes years where we walk away from God. And remember, the Israel that we're looking at here didn't stop worshiping, in air quotes, Yahweh. They continued to go through the practices, observe the festivals, show up at church, but their hearts were far from God. And their acts were idolatrous as they also worshipped other things. And so they had this juxtaposition. On the outside, they had kind of a I'm okay, you're okay mentality, but on the inside, they were in active and persistent resistance against the clear teachings that God had given them. Okay? Those are the seasons I want to focus on. I want to talk about the skeletons in our closet that have been in there so long they've grown dusty. Okay? I want to talk about the places in our life and the seasons where being far from God has become normative and accepted as just the way it is. I want to talk about the seasons where we've settled for less than God wants and we've decided to both and our life and enjoy the things that God says we cannot enjoy and pretend that we still have a vibrant relationship with God. And the reason is primarily because that's what's going on with Israel in our text this morning. Okay. We're moving forward from Deuteronomy, where we were last week, to hear thousands of years of history, okay? And so the rebellion and the, the sinfulness or the distance we're talking about is now full-fledged generational, okay? It has become enculturated. We're not just talking about individual sin, but an entire society that is strayed from God, okay? And it's gone on for so long that God has persistently sent prophets, spokespersons to say, hey, where you're headed leads to death and to judgment. Turn around. And it goes unheeded. And another generation, and unheeded, and so on and so forth. And so Hosea is now speaking of the inevitable consequence of this, which is God's judgment. And in the language of God's relationship or covenant with Israel, that judgment is exile. Okay. They're in the promised land, but God tells them all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, if you rebel against me, if you turn from my ways, if you serve other gods, then I will remove you from this land and send you out of it. And the metaphor that Hosea primarily uses for this is the metaphor of marriage. And what he says is, I am a loving 
and faithful and trustworthy husband who is married to an unfaithful woman. And not just a, I had an affair with an office co-worker unfaithful woman, but, but effectively a prostitute. One who has decided to invite all comers and all paramours and has made it her life pursuit to have sexual relations with other people than her husband. That's the image of the book of Hosea. To the degree that God calls this prophet Hosea and he says, I want you to marry that woman knowing that she is going to be unfaithful and setting up, if you will, a prophecy in life, a lived example of God's relationship with Israel. Okay. And so I want to draw your attention here in chapter 2 to verse 14. And I just want to read verses 14 and 15, and then we're going to jump around in the rest of chapter 2 and look at some other things. But here's Here's the picture. Here's the wilderness. Here's the focal point for us today. Notice what it says in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. God, none of us can stand here this morning as those who do not need repentance. None of us can stand here this morning as so perfect and so sinless and so complete that we do not need to hear this message. However, some of us need to hear it in spades. Some of us need to hear it with the volume at 11. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us all this morning, and especially to those of us who have been away for a long time, who maybe offer confessions of your goodness with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. Help us to see the reasonableness and the goodness of repentance. And even more, God, help us to see the love of a God who invites us to repent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, with the background I've given you of hundreds of years of history of unfaithfulness, of the picture of infidelity in marriage of, you know, a major scale, and then we hit the word, therefore, in verse 14, and as I told you, the the whole book is framed as judgment, but you hit this therefore, and that's what you're anticipating. Therefore, I'm done. Therefore, divorce. Therefore, it's over. That would be a reasonable expectation. And on your own time, you can read through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you'll see that you've got a speeding train headed for this cliff. And when it hits it, there's only one way to go. But notice just the next few words. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. It's shocking. It's surprising. And what I want to draw our attention to this morning, as I said in my prayer, is that there is a rationality or a reasonableness to repentance. Or to put it a different way, staying with your sin is dumb. It's foolish. And what we get as we look at this passage is we see a handful of strong reasons why we should repent. And at the heart of it, Again, is the one who's offering. The heart of it is the God we're responsible to, the God we're committed to, the God that we pray to, the God who we uh, will give an account to. That God is this one. Therefore, I will allure her. And I will bring her into the wilderness. But it says, and there I will speak tenderly to her. In fact, notice what it says at the end of verse 15. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Do you see the the textual tie there between where we were last week? He says, this wilderness is going to be like that wilderness. But when we use the language here of marriage, what does it turn that first original out of Egypt time into? The honeymoon. Right? It looks back on this relationship and it says, I'm going to take it back to the beginning. What, What God is calling for here and what he wants to do is a renewal of vows. What he's after here is a second honeymoon. 
He says, I'm going to bring you back into the wilderness. We're going to start again, and you're going to remember. Because that's the real problem. Look just uh, at chapter 2, verse 9. Here's, here's another therefore, and we'll return to this in just a second, but notice the imagery here. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I'll take my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Sorry, I was looking at a different Bible last night. Uh, verse 13. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she retur- burned offering to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers, and notice this, and forgot me, declares the Lord. That's, that's this kind of culminating image. She's gone after lo- other lovers and she's forgotten me. Therefore, I'm going to allure her into the wilderness. Therefore, I'm going to speak tenderly. Therefore, it's going to be as it was in the days of her youth in the time she came out of the land of Egypt. And it will continue. He's got more to say and we'll return to it. But I want to show you the reasonableness, as I said, of repentance. And this isn't something that's just from Hosea. Think of the opening invitation of the book of Isaiah, another prophet, contemporary to Hosea, who also spoke to Israel. This is what he says. In the words, in the mouth of God, Isaiah says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Okay? Now, two amazing things about that. First, again, he says, Come, and I'll take what's dirty and make it clean. Come, and I'll take what's stained, and I'll purify it. That's the invitation. Not come and I'll give you what you deserve and I'm gone. And then second, he says, let us reason together. He doesn't say, look, we're at an impasse here. Maybe we can compromise. He says, be rational. Again, there is an insanity to sin. Especially for us as Christians who know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If that's how your relationship began, it increases the foolishness factor of returning to sin. To the degree that the New Testament says it's like a dog returning to its own vomit. It made you sick last time, dog. Right? We find salvation and then we turn from salvation to what we were saved from. It's foolish. And so I want to draw your attention to this reasonableness and notice a couple of things. These are drawn from the earlier part of chapter 2, and this time I'm going to be more aware of the fact that I can't trust my spatial memory and have to remember where the numbers were. But notice what it says, starting here. Let's pick up in verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. Now, I know there's a change in imagery there, but most mothers are also wives, so I'm pretty sure you can follow it. We won't won't, um, tire ourselves trying to follow that thread of who the children are right now. But notice it says, she who conceived them is active shamefully, for what did she say? I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And so what what does she see? She sees a benefit to these other lovers. She sees them as providers of good things that make her wealthy. But notice as it continues, verse 6, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And she did not, notice this, did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I'll take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now notice as it continues in verse 10. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig tree, of which she said, notice this, these are my wages which my lover has given me. Okay. 
Here's the first point I want to draw your attention to this morning. It has to do with this tension of the good things that Israel enjoyed. God says, I gave you the grain and the wool and the flax and the oil. And this is especially important in the context of Israel's history. You may have noticed a couple of times this god Baal is mentioned. Baal was the god of the harvest in the land of the Canaanites. He was the one who provided all these things. But what God is pointing out is, how was Baal even attracted to you when you already had it? And if you go back and you read Israel's history, this was what God promised to do. If you are faithful to me, I will provide all these things. Okay? In fact, the festivals of Israel were a preventative measure against the appeal of other cults. And here's what I mean. Because the festivals of Israel happened at the beginning of the harvest and they came as an act of gratitude. The festivals in Baal worship were before the planting as an incentive to Baal to provide. And it was illicit. These festivals were effectively orgies because the copulating of human beings stimulated the gods of the Canaanites into copulating which made plants. Okay? Now again, I know that this is not our context, but you have to understand here that God is saying, look, I gave you all these things, you already had it, what was the appeal? But when we look at her, when we look at our own rationality of sin, which is irrational, but we justify our sin all the time, so it must make sense to us, she says two things. She says, the gods give me good things, my idols provide things. And then she also says, they're what I deserve, they're my wages. Here's what I'd like to suggest. The first reason we see in this text, this rational reason for repentance, is that we forget the abundance that God gives. Okay. And suddenly, the no's of God, which are few and far between, rage much louder in our ears than the multitude of yeses. I'll show you what I mean. Consider Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve are put in a place that is so abundant, so beautiful, so good for nourishment, it's literally paradise, right? That's the definition of the Garden of Eden, okay? And God plants them in this garden that's already grown up and full of food for them and says, of all the trees in the garden you can eat, except that one, except that one. But the serpent comes and convinces Eve and says, well, why can't you have that tree? If God really loved you, wouldn't he let you have that tree? Right? Do you see the myopic focus? that It focuses on the single no in, in, a, in a cornucopia of yes. All of the variety, all of the value, all of the beauty. But most importantly, it makes her think that God is withholding something that he's already given. What does Eve say when she looks at the tree. It tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that Eve looked at the tree and she saw that the tree was good for food, was beautiful to the eye, and was capable of making one wise. Again, homework. Go and read through Genesis 1 and 2 and see if you spot that phrase anywhere else, and here's where you'll find it. And God planted a garden that was full of trees that were good for fruit and pleasant to the eyes. She already had it. Israel already had it. Okay. And so there is a discontentment that leads to sin. It's an assumption like the serpent works into Eve's heart that God is withholding something good from you. But it weighs against the evidence of God's goodness in your life as it stands right now. Sin is never, sin is never about the starving who are so desperate for food they'll go about illegal ways to get it. Sin is always from a place of satiation and boredom and curiosity about what you don't have as opposed to what you do. And it inherently, and this is what makes it so heinous, what makes it so awful, it inherently denies God's goodness. That's the great lie of the serpent. It's not, did God really say? The underlying lie is, does God really care? 
Does God really have your best interest at heart? And so we, we look at the woman here, and, and we look at Israel, and we scratch our heads and go, what was the appeal? But when you are your most reasonable, it's the same way. Again, repentance is reasonable. Jesus tells a story about repentance, one that you probably know. We often call it the parable of the prodigal son, right? Here is a son who has wealth at home, and he takes his portion, and he squanders it away, and then he has to work for a living, but it's a famine, so there's no work, and so he ends up selling himself into slavery to another person and feeding the pigs. And as he's sitting there in the mud, wishing he ate as well as the pigs he's taking care of, it says, and the man came to himself. I love that phrase because we use it of that and we use it of werewolves, right? There's, an, there's a madness of being a werewolf where you have no idea where you've been all night and then you wake up and you come to yourself, right? It's, that's the idea, is you're human again, okay? And that's the idea of the parable. He wakes up and he goes, not just how did I get here, he, he could trace the line, but why did I allow myself to get here? And he says, even my father's servants eat better than me. I'd rather be a servant. Forget sonship. I might have blown that out. But I can go back and at least have a better employer in my dad, right? There's a reasonableness. There's a rationalness. And it's the rationalness that he actually had it pretty good before he left home. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is in... In verse 6. So here's this woman who's chasing after all of these men, all of these lovers, who, who's prostituting themselves, herself to them. And then he says, because of that, verse 6, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. Okay. Now, two things about this. One is... This is a gracious act, okay? If we just reduce this down to a husband, it sounds controlling. It sounds like hiring a detective and interfering in, you know, in cell phone lines and all of this stuff. But remember that this is just a metaphor. And also notice here that the interest God has is for the sake of his wife, not just for his own sake. He is a jealous husband, there's no reason to avoid that imagery. It's biblical imagery. But he is jealous of this good and valuable relationship that they have. And so he says he's going to do this with what is the goal. That's the second thing I want you to notice. Verse 7, halfway through. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better than me, for me than now. Okay. Now again, what is going on here? I mentioned to you last week that because God loves us as a father, he also disciplines us, which means that he doesn't let us get away with things. That's effectively what's happening here. God is interfering in the choices of his people for their own sake. He is making it harder for them to keep on the path that they're on, which is a path that leads away from God and straight to death. Okay. Now, to be fair... I don't think this means that as Israel tried to go to the temple, suddenly there was a rose bush blocking the way, right? That's not the idea. The idea is metaphorical. But we do see occasions where God does extremely drastic things to try and prevent sin. Think of Jonah. Jonah says, I'm done being your prophet. I'm not going where you sent me. I will go away so he gets on a ship and God sends a storm. Okay, that's this. In fact, he, he does it in such a way that although Jonah's trying to be a prophet undercover, he has to come clean to all these people he's traveling with and saying, I'm a prophet of the living God and he told me to do this thing and I wouldn't do it and no doubt that's what's going on, right? There's no hiding anymore. Okay. Consider Balaam. Balaam starts knowing that he cannot be a prophet for money. That he has to say only what God tells him. And so uh, somebody who's against Israel, the king of Moab, comes to him and says, Hey, 
I really want you to curse the Israelites. And he says, it doesn't really work that way. But I can pray and ask God if he'll let me. And he does, and God's pretty clear. He says, nope. (laughs) And what does Balaam do? He goes back and he says, sorry, it's not going to work. And the king of Moab is smart, and he goes, oh, that's really too bad for you because I was going to pay you so handsomely. And he says, let me get a second opinion. So he prays again, and this time God says, go. But on the way, as Balaam is walking, there is a literal angel with a flaming sword blocking the way, ready to take his life. And a literal donkey who can see said angel, because Balaam can't, and ends up talking to stop Balaam from doing something dumb. Okay, That's what we're talking about here. Now, I imagine that some of you have probably had the hindsight to recognize similar things where doors just mystifyingly closed in front of you when you were about to go headlong into, and maybe irreversibly so. But more often, there's a natural and normal reality of this. Okay, if I can borrow a phrase of C.S. Lewis, he says, God has placed many inns, you know, like hotels, on the road home, but made none of them so nice that we would mistake it for the home itself. I would like to modify that a little and say that behind every idol is a true good, but none of them so good that we can find ultimate satisfaction. Okay. And so here's what happens. We do what we do because it's what we want to do, which means that there's benefits for us, which means that there's enjoyment. And the truth is, for most of us, sin is not a burden when we start. It's a relief. It's a release. It is a, finally, this is what I was truly seeking. This is what I was really after. But that's only where it starts. It never stays there. God has designed the world in such a way that those things that raise up to be divine in our life, that raise up to be gods, that raise up to be places of ultimate significance, provision, and protection, He's designed them all in such a way that as we spend more time with them, there's diminishing returns, okay? And, and we see this in addiction, don't we? Okay, your first hit of whatever the new drug is is an over-the-moon reality, but over time, you build up a tolerance. You need more and more, and you're always chasing that first high, and you never find it again. It's the same with sexual immorality, Okay? It doesn't do what it's meant to do anymore because it's used wrong. It's like using a knife to turn a screw. Eventually, the knife dulls, and it just doesn't do what it's supposed to do anymore. This is the way life is, and that is God's gracious reality that he will not allow you to be fully satisfied with the things that can't ultimately satisfy you. And so the truth is, We get caught in habits. We get caught in chasing, like I said, the high or this original thing and thinking that we can still find it as we get further and further away from that original experience. And it would be reasonable, like the woman here, to go, it was better with my first husband. It would be reasonable, like the son, to say, even the servants in my father's household eat better than this. It would be reasonable to wake up and recognize this actually doesn't do the trick. This hasn't actually brought the life that I brought. Instead, if Jesus is accurate, and I believe he is always accurate, instead what we found was not freedom but slavery. And and I'm going to fill in a few blanks here. I'm dealing with a metaphor, so it's, it's, it's only effective rhetorically. I don't think this is really what happened with Hosea's wife, but... But it's like this. It's like first, she was just after an affair. And first, she was just after a single person who she was more interested in than her husband. But now she's a prostitute. Do you think that was her original aspiration? Did she think, boy, you know how I could make a lot of money? Or you know what sounds like a great life? And this is exactly how it is with sin. It has an initial appeal But the product is never like the advertisement. And the more we engage with it, the worse it gets. And so not only is there diminishing returns, but corresponding, there's higher and higher demands. 
And so now, if you've thrown yourself into your work because you're looking for the satisfaction and the applause and these types of things, now you have to put more and more on the altar. Now it's going to cost you your family. Now it's going to cost you your health. This is the way that it works. And so it's reasonable to pull the e-brake and to turn around. Okay? But more than that, let's return again to the heart here in chapter 2, verse 14. What is waiting for us on the other side of repentance? And let me tell you this, wherever you're at this morning, this is always true. What is waiting for you on the other side of repentance? Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make her valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. What is waiting here is full forgiveness. What is waiting here is a complete restoration of the experience of God's love. What is waiting here is something that hardly we ever find in life, which is a complete going back and starting again. You see, most of the times what happens in our life because of sin is irreversible. There's no going back to the garden. That's the first lesson we learn about sin, right? The way is blocked. We see another angel with a flaming sword. There may be a way that God can take them forward, but there's no going back. And some of you have experienced this in your life where you've made sinful choices that were so significant there was no going back. But with God, there is always a way back. In fact, he says in the book of Joel, in the book of Joel, this, these hedges and the discipline takes the form of locusts. God literally is eating the crops alive to make a point. And he comes to them, and I, I love the book of Joel because Joel walks through the last four years and goes, look, what these locusts left behind, these ones ate, and what those ones left behind, these ones ate, and he's like, now there's nothing left. And what he says is, you haven't seen anything yet. If you keep on the way, God's going to send a human locust in the form of Babylon, and these soldiers are not just going to devour everything, they're going to devour you. But as he's calling them back, he doesn't just warn them of the dangers that are still ahead. He also says, look, if you return, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. He says, if you return, it will be like you didn't even suffer the last few years. And God is so capable of counterbalancing, of course correcting, of fixing. But that is because he is a God of love. And that's what we see here. He doesn't put the wife through some sort of boot camp to prove her love. Like I said, it's more like a second honeymoon. He says, let's begin again. Let's enjoy one another again. And yes, that requires a call sometimes to the wilderness. It requires sometimes for us to uproot ourselves from places of constant temptation to a place where God and his goodness is visible because there are no other distractions. All of that can be true, but the heart is a heart of restoration. And I want to say it so strongly this morning. If there are sins that you are quietly nursing, even though they no longer satisfy, I know what it feels like to think, but I've gone too far and there's no going back now. I know what it's like to think, even if I do go back, at best, I'm just going to be a benched second-class Christian. So I might as well just stay and have my cake and eat it too. I know what it's like to think God must be so angry with me because I could have turned around at any point and now I'm seven years deep. But this is the God you return to every time. He will never accept you as a son who's gone to the far places, squandered all your money, sold yourself into slavery. He will never let you come home as merely a servant but he will run to meet you, throw his arms around you, say, my son who is dead is alive, let's have a party. So repent. Not just for the love of God, but for God's love. Repent. And it's more than that. As if that wasn't enough. Notice what he says next. He says, there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Okay, two things here. 
The word achor just means trouble. He says, I'm going to take the valley that you're living in, the valley of trouble, and I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. Now, to be clear here, he doesn't say I'm going to take the valley of achor and instantly turn it into a valley of happiness. What does hope imply? It means goodness is coming. It means possibilities are open again. It means there's a way forward. It doesn't mean it's all over. Okay, now there's a second meaning of Achor. This is where its name comes from. Achor is the place that's named for the person Achan. Do you remember the story? So Israel first enters into the land and they're to fight this Jericho, the major city, the major stronghold there. And God says, this first city, all of its loot, all of its gold, all of its garments, all of it you're going to burn in the fire. It's devoted to me. It's not for you. But Achan, while the battle is going on, spies a few things that he likes, a bar of silver, a nice, a nice thing. And so he takes it, he hides it, he buries it in his tent. And so when they're taking on the much smaller Ai the next week, just a little town, they're completely routed. And Joshua throws himself on the floor before God and he says, God, why would you let us down now? And he says, it's not me, there's sin in the camp. And they discover that Achan has done this. And again, we have this study in sin. He says, I saw, I coveted, and I took. It's just Eve all over again, playing out in the same way, questioning God's goodness just because he asked for the spoils of this one place when God was giving them literally the promised land, a land of milk and honey, and he, he squanders it for a little silver. Okay. There's a foolishness in it, but it's also a place of deep judgment. And Achan and his family who became accomplices by helping him hide this sin, they're all stoned to death. That's the valley of Achan. It's a reminder of punishment. It's a reminder of judgment. It's a reminder of consequence. And God says, but if you return, I'm going to turn it into a door of hope. And here's the thing. Sin very quickly complicates things. And the more that we continue in it, the more complicated things get. The more it soils relationships, the more it costs us from our savings, the more it changes our habits and our character. But God can step into those troubles, the troubles you find yourself in by your own doing. And he can open a door of hope. He can make a way where there is no way. He can create an exit strategy and a road towards restoration. He can restore the years the locusts have eaten. He can do that. So this idea that it's over, that this can't be fixed, that this is all I deserve, and so I've made my bed and now I'll lie in it, and if God's not going to punish me, at least I'll punish myself. Underneath that is an assumption that this can't be set right. It can. God can create a door of hope. In fact, notice how it continues here. Verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now I want to return to the last section in just a minute, but notice how this opens. He says in verse 17, For I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Do you know what that is? That's different than what we've seen. We've seen forgiveness, but this is transformation, right? He says, I'm going to make you a bride that no longer chases idols. I'm going to change your character and your habits so that sin no longer has its hold on you or its appeal. I'm going to make it so that there is nothing in the word Baal that sounds loving or valuable. And again, this is exactly what God has promised in Jesus Christ. Not merely forgiveness, 
but transformation, sanctification, to make you progressively and consistently more and more as God is himself. That's what he's saying here. Okay. And again, again, one of the reasons, especially in the late fourth quarter of sinful behavior that we give up is because we can, we're convinced the game is lost. We give up because we think, I, I couldn't stop this if I wanted to. We think, I am no longer capable. But the God who delivered you once can deliver you again. And that, again, is very rarely instant. And again, as I'll remind you last week, Jesus said what, look, what following him looks like, looks like death. So it comes with cost, and it comes with sacrifice, and it comes with developing new habits to replace the old ones, and it comes with learning in a new community instead of the old one. All of those things are true. And anytime we repent, they all become true again. But God is capable through the means of grace, through confession and repentance and the disciplines and hearing the word taught and you know, surrendering yourself to God's will, he is capable of changing who you are. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6, and such were, past tense, some of you, idolaters, sexually immoral people, drunkards. Such were, but you are now washed. You are now sanctified. You are now justified in Jesus Christ. God is in the business of making new people. Okay. And so he can do that with you. And then lastly and finally, and we already saw a glimpse of this, there is this eternal reality of where we're headed. And so he says again in verse 18, I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. Right? This is the beginning of that new relationship. It's, it's not just a second honeymoon. Like I said, it's a renewal of vows. It's a brand new marriage he says, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, verse 21 declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. Both of those are references to chapter one. Those are the children that we mentioned. He makes Hosea name his children. I'm not going to have mercy on that one. And that one's not even mine. Okay? Which actually is what's happening in Hosea's life. His second kid, not his kid. Okay? But he says, I'm going to change their name. I'm going to make them mine. And then notice this. He says, he says, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now, that's the language of the covenant where it starts. And I will be your people, or sorry, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's what God says he's up to in Exodus, and it's repeated in Deuteronomy. And here, there's a return to that. But here's what we often miss. That is covenant language. Covenants aren't like contracts. Covenants are unique because they're about loyalty. They're inherently relational. It's not an exchange of goods and services. It says, I belong to you, and you belong to me. Which is why this sentence is paralleled in the wedding vows, if you will, of the Song of Songs, okay? This book about human marriage. She says, I belong to my beloved, and my beloved belongs to me. Here, I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is the renewal of vows that I was talking about. But what does it imply? It implies a return to the loving relationship that God intended, Again, it's not returning to be a servant in the house of the Lord. It's returning to full status as son. It's not returning to be cared for in the house of the Lord, but no longer intimate, but the full wife relationship. It is the ultimate reason to repent is because, as John Piper likes to say, God is the gospel. It's not just what God has done that is good news. God himself is the good news. That satisfaction that you were chasing in your sin, at its deepest heart, at the place where it's most true, it points to God. 
the goodness that God has created in our created world is himself. The relationship that God offers is what you're looking for. It has the satisfaction and the security. It is all that you need. What God desires to prove to you in repentance is what David prayed when he said, who do I have on earth but you? And who do I have in heaven but you? It was the recognition that I have all I need. It was the recognition that God is enough, which again is the exact opposite of the temptation that began this, that said, no, he's not. You need this. You need that. You need the other. The final reason to repent here is because the satisfaction you're looking for is available in the relationship that God offers us. And so let me say it with deep compassion, but with strong conviction. Take this season and repent. As we step into this time of the wilderness, this time of the Lent season, repent. In the second century when Lent began, there were two people that Lent kind of began for before it became a broader practice for the church. New Christians, as they were going through their catchmen, their question and answer, learning about the faith and awaiting their baptism, and heinously notorious sinners who had been disciplined by the church and were ready to come to the Lord. And so they would take this period to humble themselves, to seek the Lord again, and to prepare for full restoration to the church. What we're doing over the next 40 days is, like Nick said, with the opportunity and the possibility of recalibration. It's an opportunity and a possibility to be born again again. It's an opportunity to receive the announcement on the cross of Jesus Christ that it is finished. And his statement later, peace be to you for I am alive. And have it mean what it used to mean all over again. So wherever you're at, even if it's just in the daily repentance, orient it towards the reality of who God is. And if there's big things, they're not too big to be forgiven. They're not too big to be set right. God's love overflows. God's grace overwhelms. And God's goodness is unchanged when there's repentance. Let's pray.